So welcome to New Life Community Church and happy Father's Day to all our dads who are joining us online or those of you that are here in person. We're glad you're with us today. Father's Day has become a day of celebration and remembering in, in many parts of the world today. It's become a day not only to honor our father, but all those men who act as father figures. Stepfathers, uncles, grandfathers, and other significant adult males who are, are all honored on Father's Day. What, what, a, what is Father's Day? Well, one little boy said Father's Day is just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much money. And I think he was right. I mean, I read that and I thought, I'm going to do a little bit of research on this. So I discovered that Americans spend around $12.7 billion on Father's Day. That sounds significant, right? However, for Mother's Day, they spend around $21 billion, okay? So almost twice as much, and perhaps that's fitting, I suppose, and I'm not going to say anything else about it. So instead, fathers... All of you here that are fathers this morning, I'd like you to stand on your feet for a moment. All dads, stand up if you can. Now, I'd like you all to stay standing the whole service, actually, okay? Just to show how tough dads are. I won't. I'm just kidding. But please stay standing because we're going to pray for all our dads right now. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks at this very special time of the year for our dads for our uncles, our grandfathers, and, and other special men in our lives. We thank you for these men here today, for the great influence they are in this church and in this community. We're better because of men who love you, who serve you, who bring their families to church, and who lead their families at home. Father, with all the things we're going to talk about today, I thank you that for so many that are already doing them. They're an inspiration to me and, and all of us. We lift them up to you and we pray for strength, protection, wisdom, and discernment to help them and their families through whatever trials they may be facing. And we ask that you would guard their minds and their hearts in Jesus Christ and create in them a deep sense of trust in you knowing that they can depend on you to help them at all times and in all circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want you to know as we start that Father's Day came about by a woman. A woman named Sonora Dodd from Spokane, Washington back in 1908. She was actually sitting in a church listening to a Mother's Day sermon. And it dawned on her that there wasn't a celebration yet for fathers. And what was important to her was that Sonora Dodd's mother died when she was just a small little girl. And she was raised almost exclusively by her very hardworking father. So she petitioned the government and eventually Father's Day became as, almost as important as much as celebration as Mother's Day. So this morning I want to speak to men today primarily, young men raising families, older men who have been there and done that, but are still in a role with their grandchildren and mentoring others. 
I want to speak to single men who will one day become fathers. And then also to women so that you'll understand the unique role that fathers play in a home in, a cult- in, a, in our culture today. So women, to help you understand men a little better, I'm going to teach you that. Let me go through some common phrases that you've probably heard said over the several past years. And let me retranslate what men say to you sometimes, okay? This comes from the men's thesaurus. It goes, when a man says, I'd, it'd take too long to explain, he means, I have no idea how it works. I can relate to that one. When a man says, take a break, honey, you're working too hard. He really means, I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner. When a man says, that's interesting, dear, he means there's no rational thought pattern connected to this. And you have no chance at all of making it logical. When a man says, can I help you with dinner? He really means, why isn't dinner ready yet? And when a man says, "Uh uh-huh, sure, honey, or yes, dear, He means absolutely nothing. It's just a conditional response. (laughs) When a man says, you know how bad my memory is? He means, I can remember the theme to Hogan's Heroes, the phone number of the first girl I ever kissed, all the vehicle identification numbers of every car I've ever owned, but yes, I forgot your birthday. 39 years ago, I became a dad. I'm the father of three children, a daughter and two sons. 14 years ago, I became a grandfather for the first time. Now I have two granddaughters and one grandson. And I enjoyed being a dad uh, pretty much until they became teenagers. You know, the most feared creatures on the planet. But we all survived, and, and now it's, it's fun. It's a blast to watch my children raise their children. So let's get started with our lesson today. Please turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. Luke eight forty. The father in our text of Scripture is somebody who understood the weight of fatherhood. For this is a man who has a 12-year-old daughter who's at the point of death in her life, and he's desperate. Any parent who's seen a child suffer is immediately drawn to this story and immediately drawn to the compassion of our Savior as seen in this story. It's a story of a father and his daughter. We don't know the little girl's girl's name. We know she's 12. But we do know the father's name, and his name is Jairus. And we're told in the text that he was a ruler of the local synagogue, which would naturally mean that this 12-year-old girl would have seen and would have known her father is somebody very important, that he was a hard-working man, and that he's very prominent in their society. So let's read the text together, and then we'll go back and look at some of the details in this text. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So there's there's a huge crowd waiting for Jesus. And in that crowd were all kinds of people, people who were hurting, people who were suffering, people who were handicapped, people who couldn't hear, people who couldn't see. They're waiting. They're waiting with all their cares for Jesus to come. And understand to them, at that time, he was a hero. To To them, he was the ultimate celebrity just like he would be today if he came to Scottsdale and started healing everyone here. 
But at the same time, this crowd was a very fickle crowd. It's the same crowd that are waiting for him and, and begging for him to come, that are going to scream for his blood later on. They were looking for miracles right now. They were looking for solutions to human problems right now. And truly, there weren't many in this crowd who were really believers at all. But now a surprise comes, a jolting surprise. Verse 41, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only, one, uh, had only an, a daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So now in the next verses, verse 43 down to 48, it's a, there's a story of an interruption to this. A woman comes along who has a disease, a flow of blood. She just wants to touch the tassel of Jesus' robe to be healed of this terrible disease. She's tried everything. She's tried all the doctors. She's broke. She's poor. But she's also unclean because of this disease. And she's taken a huge risk because if she was found out, she could be stoned for being there. I'm sure she has her head covered so no one can see who she is. And she's the complete opposite of Jairus. She's the, in this story, as we go through, it's going to reveal to us that our Savior is one who embraces these extremes. Like Jairus, this woman has a legitimate faith. So Jesus stops. He's on his way to Jairus's, but then this woman touches him and he stops. He interrupts his trip to Jairus's home to spend time speaking with this poor sick woman. And while Jesus deals with this woman, Jairus's anxiety, no doubt, is being elevated at every moment. He's got to be thinking, come on, come on. Time's a waste and my daughter's dying. So after Jesus' encounter and healing of this woman, the story of Jairus continues in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. Verse 51, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 53, and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So you have a girl and a father. And this girl, like I said, would have seen her father as somebody important, somebody hardworking. But because of this story, she's going to see some other things than her father. And there are three things that I want you to see also. First of all, she saw a dad unashamed to seek Jesus. Remember, he's a high-ranking spiritual official in this town. That town was Capernaum. And you can go there today, as a matter of fact, and still see the ruins of this very synagogue in Capernaum. Jairus is a leader of the synagogue, which were generally 
involved social and economic leaders in their community. He was primarily an economic social leader in their community because of it. Everybody knew him. He was somebody. This man, a ruler, supervised the worship in the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue planned the worship services. He chose who it would be to read the scrolls of Scripture. He picked the person who would give the message that day. Normally, people came to him looking for solutions to their problems. So he was well-known and highly esteemed. He was a, a very religious and pra- perhaps, perhaps even a Pharisee, as some scholars believe. And that's important because Jesus' greatest enemies at this time were the members of the Pharisee party. So it would have been interesting to say that here you have a guy who is very religious in Judaism, a part of the Capernaum religious establishment dominated by Pharisees, who's seeking Christ. But he's desperate, right? All religious battles aside, he's been reduced to a grief-stricken father. He's a dad with a young girl who's dying, and he will do anything to help her. Now, he goes to show us that no matter how important you are, no matter how spiritual you are, you are never at a place where trouble cannot find you. Pain is the great equalizer of the human race, right? It touches everyone. And you can't get so rich or so important that you're kept in this little place sheltered from the pains of life. C.S. Lewis used to say, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain, he said, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, Jairus was roused, and he went looking for Jesus. All he cares is about is that he gets to Jesus quickly, and that Jesus gets to his daughter before it's too late. Whatever his importance, whatever his status, whatever his standing, and whatever his religious affiliation, he's a desperate father. The apple of his eye, that sweet little girl, is at the point of death. At 12 years old, this little girl is on the threshold of becoming a woman. His parents have to be very excited about this time in her life. For in the first century Jewish culture, it was soon after this age that parents began to make marriage arrangements for their daughters. They would not necessarily marry immediately, but the contracts between parents would be drawn up at this time. When so many children died young and so many women died in childbirth at that time, they didn't mess around. This young girl is, at the, is in the prime of her life, but she's dying. Her life may soon be over. So what does her father do? He overcomes any pride he might have. He overcomes any prejudice he might have towards Jesus Christ. And he goes off to find him. Now this is interesting. He doesn't send his wife to find Jesus. You know, honey, you're into this religious stuff. You you go get him. He doesn't send a servant to help find Jesus. Or a friend, which he could have easily done. He's important. But he himself gets up and seeks after Jesus. And he doesn't come at night like Nicodemus did. He comes during the daylight hours. He comes when there's a crowd of people all around him. In fact, look, look again at verse 40. It says, Jesus returned and the multitude welcomed him. They were all waiting for him. 
But Jairus is so desperate, he doesn't care what the people are going to think about him or, or Jesus. I just got to find him. I got to get him. Jairus being the ruler in the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus had been doing miracles several times, surely had been there on numbers of occasions when Jesus gave sight to the blind or, or hearing to the deaf or made lame people walk. So Jairus comes and finds Jesus in the crowd and the text says that he bows before him. He, he utterly humbled himself. He's in a desperate situation and he can do nothing about it. He publicly throws himself down before Christ, casting aside all dignity to request that Jesus come and do what great men cannot do. He's seeking Jesus in an unashamed manner, just as all dads today should be doing. You're the spiritual leader of your home. Whether you like it or not, men, you are that leader. You're either leading your family closer to God or you're leading them further away from God. Let that sink in for a moment. The great Greek philosopher Socrates asked the men of his generation, why do you turn and scrape every stone to find wealth, but take so little care of the children to whom one day you will relinquish all? So here's my question. If a pagan Greek philosopher thought spending time with children was important, how much more should a New Testament Christian father be concerned about spending time with his children and making it a priority of seeking Jesus Christ and being concerned that his children do the same? Unfortunately, we live in a nation of dads seeking golf balls rather than God on Sundays. To them, football is more important than fellowship. Fun is more to be sought than with their own families. At a former church I served at several years ago, I have a vivid, vivid memory in my brain of this dad who was sending the wrong message to his children. In the summer, just about every summer, many days of the summer, I'd be standing at the front door of the church greeting people coming in, and I would see this family pull right up in, in the parking lot right by the front door. They'd park right there. And it was not hard to miss them because they would be driving this gigantic pickup truck with every bell and whistle you can imagine, and behind it was this huge ski boat. Huge. The dad would jump out of the door in his flip-flops, bathing suit, and t-shirt, run in, in the front door right by me, hand his tithe to an usher, and then run right back out the door and head out to the lake with his family. That was his priority. Fun in the sun. God was not at the top of his priority list, and his children knew that. I've always found a text in Ephesus chapter 6 interesting. You know the, the section probably, because Paul goes through all the roles of the family in it. Husband, love your wives. Wives, submit and respect to your husband. Children, obey your parents. But then he comes to how to deal with children as he addresses parents. But he doesn't address both of them. He addresses the fathers. And I've always been fascinated by this. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So my question's always been, why? Why just fathers? 
And, and I ask that question because it seems that the role of instructing children in the ways of the Lord is one that mothers and Sunday school teachers have taken, primarily because fathers have abdicated it to them. As, as a former youth pastor, I, I've been told by fathers and mothers many times that it was my job to instruct their children about the Lord. Wrong. I had a little piece of it. I had one hour a week. So why does Paul address fathers? Why does Paul say, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, there's a few reasons, perhaps. Number one, perhaps this was the the area of greatest neglect 2,000 years ago. Certainly in ancient cultures, parenting wasn't huge on dad's radars. So Paul, knowing that, would say, Fathers, it's up to you train them up. Perhaps another reason Paul said this to dads is because dads seem to be, maybe not, but seem to be more harsh. I mean, our voices alone are deeper, boomier, louder, so they can be more intimidating. I don't know. Here's the third reason. Here's what I believe is the real reason. Paul is simply addressing the head of the home. And because he is addressing the head of the home, it would infer fathers and mothers. But he's saying this to the father because the father is the head of the home. Now, certainly there's a partnership in raising children between the dad and the mom. And that's, there should be. I mean, scripture is clear that our dads need to step up and be responsible. James Dobson once wrote, and I quote, The Western world stands at a great crossroad in its history. It's my opinion that our our very survival as a people will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home, end quote. See, the cure for crime is not the electric chair. It's the high chair. And the fathers must have more involvement in that. Now, why does so much depend on dad? Why does Paul make a big deal out of this? Why do I make a big deal out of this? Well, I'll tell you why, because you know I would. It's because, number one, a child's view of God depends so much upon the father-child relationship. Just the language we use, heavenly father. If a child has a bad relationship with an earthly father and that child prays heavenly father, the mind identifies everything that child has learned from the earthly father. And that's either a good vision or a bad vision. So much of that child's idea of who, fa- of who father God is depends who the earthly father was or is. I mean, I grew up without a father. I didn't have a father. I, he left me when I was, we were like four, I was four years old, I believe. Didn't see him until I was 18 years old and maybe a couple times after that. But I had no father. But by God's grace, I'm here. So no matter your situation, dads, you need to be spiritually involved with your children. And moms, you need to tell them that. Here's a second reason. Your daughter's going to grow up and marry a man someday. She needs to know what kind of man to be looking for. The third reason, and this is also important, your son is going to grow up and marry a woman someday. He needs to know what kind of man to become. 
So much depends on masculine leadership. And so the negative and then the positive, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This means to actively, positively nurture your children to maturity in Christ. Seek Jesus yourself. This, this father, Jairus, that's what he was doing, and he was totally unashamed to do it. He knew it was going to cost him everything. So this story goes on in verse 49 of Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> While Jesus is speaking to the woman, woman who touched his robe, telling her to be of good cheer, he's, she's healed, go in peace. Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And this is a, a pivot point in the story. Jesus was too late. In their minds, there was no longer any chance to heal her. She's dead. She died. Maybe if Jesus was not so irresponsible, delaying to sp- spending time with this other woman, this outcast, the, the lowliest person in the crowd who shouldn't have even been there in the first place, then this tragedy could have been avoided. In caring for the most rejected, he had ignored the most respected. Reminds me of the story of Lazarus when Jesus intentionally delayed two extra days. Lazarus died in the meantime. And when Jesus finally arrived, days later, Martha goes to meet him, ragged from weeping and, and the loss of her brother. And she says, if you had been here, he would not have died. If If only Jesus had not delayed two extra days, Martha's brother would still be alive. If only Jesus had not stopped to spend time with this other woman, Jairus' daughter would not have died. And we we all tend to put God in boxes, don't we? We're finite. He's infinite. We're limited. He's limitless. So someone comes and tells Jairus that his daughter is dead. And so what do you think his face looked like the moment he heard those words? The weight of those words are so final and so biting, aren't they? Some of you, you've heard those words before. Your son is dead. Your daughter is dead. Someone you love is dead. I remember what it felt like just a few months ago in the middle of the night. A nurse from the hospital called me up at 2 a.m. in the morning and said, Your mother is dead. It hurts. So Jesus heard it, and he answered, and he said, Do not fear. He gives a command here. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. So Jesus tells us constantly to not be afraid. The phrase, do not be afraid, is written in the Bible 365 times. Think about that. Why? Well, because fear is our natural action. We live in a world dominated by fear, don't we? But the Lord tells us not to be afraid 365 times. That's a daily reminder from God to live every day fearless because God has our back. And he's telling our dad here, Jairus, don't stop what you've already begun. Jairus, you have, you've come with great faith. Keep that going. Keep believing. Keep moving forward. Dad, the best example you can give your children is the legacy of a father who kept on believing in Jesus through the ups and downs of life, through the thick and thin. Keep believing. 
That's a legacy you can leave for your children. So this young girl will never forget that she saw her dad unashamed to seek Jesus. She also saw a dad who brought Jesus home. Look at verse 41. He implored him. He begged Jesus to come to his house. 51. And when he came to the house, now we have a bit of a problem here, right? He came to the house. If you recall, there's a crowd following Jesus, right? A huge crowd. It says a multitude. Jesus is at a place in his ministry where everywhere he goes or whatever he says or does, there's a crowd of people gathered around him and pressing in on him, all wanting something from him. So wherever he goes, a crowd goes with him. Now here's Jairus who's seeking Jesus and there's a multitude following Jesus. And he says, you gotta come to my house. My daughter's sick. She's dying. You gotta come, Jesus. But as Jesus comes to the house, who's coming with them? The multitudes. So that's gonna be a little awkward, right? For Jairus, for the husband to come home where a funeral has now started and gathered and say, "Uh, honey, I want you to meet Jesus and 450 of my new best friends that are following him wherever he goes. That's why Jesus has to put everybody out and just take a few of his disciples and mom and dad and enter the home. Now remember who Jairus is. He's a ruler. He's religious. He was upper echelon. He's upper management in the Jewish system. He's a very important Jewish person with a reputation at stake. And also remember who Jesus is. Not to us, but to them 2,000 years ago. He was very controversial. Here's some of the things they said of Jesus. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a glutton a drunkard, an illegitimate child, and he does miracles by the power of the devil. So you've got a ruler of the local synagogue dealing with a very controversial spiritual figure who has lots of names being attached to him. And he's the kind of guy you might go here, but you would never invite him into your home at risk of embarrassment or losing your social status and standing in the community. But Jairus puts all that on the line. He invites Jesus into his home. And why? Well, let me piece it together for you. And there's, there's, this is where we need to look at something. And we're not going to turn to it, but I already have. So I'll just share it with you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share this story. Okay? And they all tell a little bit different piece of it. And Luke, the man, comes to Jesus saying, My daughter is sick. Come and heal her. But then somebody comes and says, your daughter is dead. Matthew says that Jairus came to Jesus and said, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So we're dealing with the ruler of a synagogue who believes in Jesus Christ. That he has the power even to raise her from the dead, though she has died of natural causes. Think about that. That's incredible faith. So he seeks Jesus and now invites him to his home. Dads, let your children see that you are a dad who invites Jesus into your home. That the Jesus in your home is not just some little picture in the hallway or a crucifix hanging on the wall. Let them see that he's a real person that you have a relationship with inside of your home. 
See, if you come to church every day carrying a Bible, and I hope you do come to church every Sunday carrying a Bible, that in and of itself is a statement. It really is. It says you live under the authority of God's Word to your children. God's Word is important to you. But if that's all they see, Dad brought his Bible to church, but he never opens it. He never opens it Monday through Saturday at home either. What will they think? I know that Dad went and prayed when he bowed. everyone bowed their heads before the service, but I've never seen him pray at home. Again, what does that say to your children? Years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I asked my incoming freshman students every year to answer four questions for me. Number one, do your parents read the Bible with you? Two, do you ever see your parents reading the Bible? Three, do your parents pray with you? And four, do you ever see your parents praying? I did this to help me better understand their spiritual lives at home so I knew where they were at. And sadly, it was rare, it was very rare that any student would reply yes to any of those four questions. We need to let our children see the kind of dad or mom that brings Jesus home to the family and his his or her own life in front of everyone, no matter the cost. When you invite Jesus to be the Lord of your home, you're protecting your home, and that's your responsibility. In ancient days, there was a festival called Passover. Do you remember how Passover got started? Well, in the book of Exodus, you'll you'll see it. When the death angel passed through the land of Egypt, it was the 10th plague of the Egyptians. It was the plague where the firstborn of the Egyptians and the children of Israel would be killed unless you put the blood of a lamb on the lentils and the doorpost of your home. The family's security depended on the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. And whose responsibility was it to dip the hyssop in the blood and put it on the lentils and doorpost of the house? It was dad's job, the head of the household. So now the family security and the firstborn child security totally depends on the diligence of the father. Fathers, dads, grandfathers, moms, there's an angel of death death passing through the living rooms of this, this country right now. I hope you're aware of it. It breaches the walls of your home by your television, your computers, and your cell phones. Are you monitoring it? Are you watching over it? It's the internet. According to the Internet Filter Review, the largest consumer of internet pornography is the age demographic between 12 years old and 17 years old. And it doesn't stop there by any means. Kids are being terrorized on the internet. They're being bullied on the internet. One in 17 children ages 10 to 17 are threatened or harassed over the internet. One out of every five children has been propositioned for cybersex on computers or cell phones. The internet is a great thing. I need it. I love it. I don't know what I'd do without it at this point in my life. But it can also be dangerous and deadly. So what are we doing as dads to apply the blood of the Lamb, Lord Je- the Lord Jesus Christ, to our homes? As Martin Luther used to say, you can't stop birds from flying over your head but you can certainly stop them from building a nest in your hair. 
The devil wants to build a nest in your home. Do you let him in? We need to all be like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what men need to do. You're the head of the home. Who's the head of you? Jesus Christ. And if you're a single mom, that's your responsibility. So are you seeking after him? Are you seeking Jesus Christ? Are you bringing him into your home? Third and finally, this 12-year-old daughter of Jairus saw a dad who expressed his love for his children. Verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. 52, And all were weeping and mourning for her, but, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Why would Jesus say she's only sleeping? Because she was dead. Every text in the New Testament that has a story uh, says that she died. Jesus uses the metaphor here, speaking of Christian death, a believer's death as sleeping. It's a fitting metaphor because sleep is temporary, right? If you fall asleep, you're going to wake up. When Lazarus was sick and Mary and Martha sent that little postcard to Jesus, quick, come, my brother's sick. He's your friend, come and heal him. Jesus read it, put it aside, waited a couple of days till he died. Then after he died, said to his disciples, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to wake him. Now they didn't get it either. They go, well, like if he's asleep, he'll kind of like wake up, won't he? And Jesus said, he's dead. He died. I was speaking metaphorically. When Stephen in the book of Acts was stoned to death, this is how Luke describes his death, and he fell asleep. So believing brother, believing sister, you have no more fear of death than you do of taking a nap. You fall asleep. Your loved one dies. They're going to wake up in a resurrection. That's what Jesus speaks of. I have a grandson named Ellis, three years old, and he thinks that taking a nap is punishment. He comes over to our house and says, it's time to take a nap. And he goes, no, no. <laughs> Someday, he's going to be older and be enlightened. And he'll see that a nap is a reward, not a punishment. But whatever, he doesn't get it. And how many of us don't get it? She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And they ridiculed. They didn't get it. So he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and in verse 54 said, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She rose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. She probably needs a good meal. Now you know at that point, mom and dad are going to give her whatever she wants to eat, right? And her parents, says, were amazed. That's a literary understatement but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. In effect, Jesus was saying, don't get on your phone, don't get on your email, don't get on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Do not turn this into a public spectacle. This is a holy moment for you as a family. Now here's the deal. This whole episode was motivated by a father's love for his daughter. It was love that made him go seek Jesus. It was love that made, had him invite Jesus into their home and risk everything, his status, his standing in the community. It was love. Now, we don't know how long she lived after this. 
She died at age 12. She was resurrected a day later, two days later, maybe the same day. We're not really sure. We don't know. But every single day she lived, a day probably didn't go by that she didn't remember, I'm here, I'm alive because of my father who showed his great love for me. And if she had her own children one day, they would probably learn about grandpa who loved his little girl enough to risk everything to find the man, Jesus, and bring him home. He demonstrated, he showed great love for his daughter. So, In this one episode, we see a dad unashamed to seek Jesus, unashamed to invite him into his home, and he expresses a great love for his little girl. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them up. Train them, nurture them, train them, love them, show them, educate them, demonstrate to them, model for them. Dads, moms, grandma, grandpas, aunts, and uncles, we must learn how to love. And for a, for a child, love is spelled T-I-M-E, time. If you care about me, you'll want to spend time with me and proactively raise me up in the ways of the Lord. I close with this. An anonymous father wrote, a hundred years from now, it will not matter what my bank account was, what sort of house I lived in, or what kind of car I drove, but the world may be different because I was important in the life of a child. What a thought. The world may be different because I was important in the life of a child. And of course, we can't close without celebrating another father, our heavenly father, who loved us enough and wanted a relation with us so much that he would sacrifice his own son. He sent Jesus Christ out of heaven and onto earth that he could bear a cross to pay the price for our sins, that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with him, a father-child relationship with him. And that is the greatest example of love ever given. And that's what he wants for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today humbled and in awe of your grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you for the way you have designed what a family is supposed to look like and the specific roles you have ordained to a mother and a father of how to lead their children. Yet, Lord, in our sinful ways, we have taken what you have made holy and created our own version of today's family. We've allowed the evil one to wreak havoc on our families. So we turn to you, Father, and ask that you would help all of us, all parents, to develop a deep trust and dependence upon you, that you would give us a greater understanding through your word that we would draw closer to you and develop a Christ-like character that would be an example to all of us, especially to our children and grandchildren. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for spending time with us this morning. We hope you were blessed by our time together in God's Word. If you'd like to know more about us, if we can pray for you, or if you'd like to know more about our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, please check out our website 
newlifescottsdale.org. While there, you can also find ways to financially support the ministry of New Life Community Church. As always, thank you for joining us today, and remember to join us next week as we again come together to celebrate our amazing God, who is always in control. Music